ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, Frank here, he's got his own billiard room. Yes, it's, uh, it's, uh, uh, what do you call it, Kramer? The billiard room. No. <laughs> the name. The billiard Not billiard. Not the billiards. It was... Come on, Rudy. Come on. It, we call it the, uh, the place to the be. The place to be. Yes, it's the place to be. Then I shall be there. Our next event of the evening is a one-fall match. Now, it's time. Live and in living color. With a 60-minute time limit. Randy Man can with a big boys play. Time to play the game! This is where the big boys play, huh? Why do I want this? Yeah, because I want to make bank, bro. I want to get ass. I want to drive a Range Rover. This is where the big boys play. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, it is now time for the Place to Be podcast. And now your hosts... Justin Rosero and Scott Criscolo with a big boys play. Well, hello everyone. You're listening to uh, Where the Big Boys Play, and uh, I'm pleased to say. The place to be. <laughs> so, um, I'm, as always, I'm here with uh, Chad. Say hi, Chad. Hey, how's it going? Uh, and I'm also here with uh, two very special guests, Scott and Justin. Say hello, fellas. Hey, Parv. Hey, Chad. Gentlemen, <laughs> it's a pleasure to be here. Um, so, yeah. So th- this is a this is a joint show uh, that we are doing, and I'm. Um, you know, uh, I didn't actually think that Scott and Justin would be uh, up for doing this, so we're we're very privileged that they've agreed to do this. And uh, as I was just saying before we uh, came on air here, um, probably we got the idea for doing our NWA WCW show um, uh, based on the pioneering work, really, that they were doing uh, and have been doing on their vintage vaults, uh, which both Chad and I are fans of. And I, I mean, I've been listening to it for over a year now. Um, so yeah, th- thanks a lot for the uh, inspiration, guys. And uh, you know, uh, I think our show is very different from yours, but still, um, I think uh, the starting platform was there. Well, that's a great compliment. Like we told you, and uh, we really appreciate it. And we're, we're definitely down for this anytime. We love to get on here and chat old school wrestling or even new school wrestling. Uh, and your your show is good as well. We we like wa- listening to it. So um, I thought it was a good fit and uh, we're looking forward to it. Here, bright and early in uh, the East Coast here. <laughs> yeah, Sunday morning. Yeah. And, um, okay, now, we, we, one of the interesting things I find about doing these is that uh, when you lose a guy, so we've just lost uh, Arn and Tully uh, from uh, NWA, uh, and once they're, once they're over there in WWF, they're gone, right? <laughs> you don't see them anymore. And uh, th- that's something that I got the impression that you guys uh, found that as well, going through the WF shows. When, when they go to WCW, they're gone, right? Yeah, and it's sad. You know, you get into, you really get into a groove talking about people. And we, we just lost Bret Hart in our reviews because like, we got into 1998. And that was a big blow because he was around for so long. I mean, pretty much since the beginning that we've been doing these, not to talk about Bret Hart matches was kind of tough. Yeah, considering he was at least always in the main event or always in the mid-card. I mean, very rarely, except for that stretch 
you know, in 96 when he, uh, when he left, uh, took the vacation, if you will. Um, he was on every month for, what, eight years? Yeah, sometimes so, twice a month. Yeah, so months. twice a night. So uh, it was kind of, it was kind of um, uh, weird to start working on other guys. But uh, I understand what you're saying because, uh, you know, Arn and Tully were uh, an integral part of these first five years of, of, uh, of NWA shows. So it is kind of different to see some new blood kind of fill in the gaps uh, while they uh, after they left. Yeah, I mean, we'll we'll get on this later, but uh, I do think there's the impression throughout 1988 that parts of Crockett are getting stale. So maybe some change uh, is good, but I, I think any company is going to miss Tully um, and Arn. But obviously Tully's gone for good now that we know. Um, and uh, you know, a lot of the early shows we did, Tully was probably the best uh, the best wrestler there. Um, anyway, we we can talk more about um, uh, Crockett a bit later, but I, th- I thought right at the start of this, one of the things that we like to do um, is uh, is a kind of a little get to know you session. So maybe we should go with you, Justin, first, and then with Scott. Um, if you could just tell us a little bit of your, um, uh, and this sounds a little bit strange because you guys have done like three hundred uh, three hundred podcasts, so um, I'm sure people know all about you guys. But um, I thought it'd be fun. If you sure. could just tell us your kind of background as a wrestling fan. Sure. I started watching in like early 1990. Uh, my cousin got me into wrestling and my brother had always uh, been a fan and my dad had watched as well. Uh, so I became hooked in early 90, became a mega fan by the end of the year. Uh, really, I, I like the years that a lot of people aren't fans of, like 94, 95, because that was right during the time where I was becoming just a major, major fan, uh, You know, buying all the magazines, ordering all the pay-per-views. I was 14. So that was a big year for me. Uh, kind of fell out a little bit when I went to college in late 98, which is an odd time to uh, fall out of things, but it was brief. I was back in by early 99. Um, I went back and caught myself up as I was uh, growing up just between renting tapes and borrowing tapes, and so I have a pretty good background, mainly heavy on WWF, but I have a good, pretty working knowledge of WCW, too. Um, favorite live show I ever attended, I was at the Mick Foley Defeating the Rock at the end of a uh, 98, aired on one four ninety nine, which we just passed the anniversary of. Um, was there live, so that was. Uh, we'll be telling that story soon in the podcast. It's a, yes. a good story I was yep. uh, experienced, I, and um, yeah, I'd say my favorite all time probably Randy Savage. Uh, Kurt Angle is a second, and uh, from there there's uh, a plethora of other guys I enjoy. But that's probably the brief synopsis. And uh, coming where you uh, come from is, uh, is is WW is that really WWF country? Is that you know? Yeah, definitely. I mean, we had WCW, you know, by the time I, I got into wrestling and was aware of everything, it was WCW. So um, we did have that uh, on TBS. So I did have a pretty good knowledge. And I watched WCW pretty much from 92 on. It was WDF was my favorite. That was the big one. Because that's my father, my brother, my cousin uh, were all into. And that just became, um, you know, that was wrestling to me. So, But I always enjoyed it. I always watched Saturday night each and every week on TN, uh, TBS. So, um and then ECW is one thing I always wanted to watch more of, but we didn't have an outlet in the late 90s there until it got on TNN, and by then it was dead in the water pretty much. So, um, yeah, WF and, and WCW are pretty much my, my wheelhouse. Chad, you got any questions for Justin before I uh, move on to Scott? Where was the uh, the Mick Foley title change? Where was that show that was in That was in Worcester. So I actually went to school in Worcester for college, but I was home on winter break, so we had to drive back up there. And uh, it was this, like, crazy snowstorm. My mom was uh, afraid for us driving up there, so she ended up, like, renting us a limo as a late Christmas gift. And uh, so we pull up in front of the, the Centrum, and we're getting out of the limo, and everyone, like, crowded around us thinking we were going to be a wrestler or something. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> going to the arena, and 
it was just amazing. I've never seen an atmosphere like that. Um, I, I, we were at WrestleMania. Scott was there too at WrestleMania 20, and the pop when Chris Benoit, you know, made uh, Triple H tap was was crazy. But this this Mick Foley winning the title, I mean, it was like your sports team won, and we were high fiving and, and hugging and people in the crowd. It was it was out of control. It was, it was a lot of fun. Definitely my favorite memory uh, being a wrestling fan. Yeah, we'll we'll get to it uh, when we get there on the podcast. But I was at the Georgia Dome when Goldberg won the title from Hogan. Oh, wow. Wow. I, I kind of, I think those moments kind of complement each other because it was the same type of deal where, uh, you know, I was forced for days after from screaming and everything. That's awesome. That is awesome. We were Goldberg Mark, Chad. I was a huge Goldberg Mark. Uh, <laughs> we'll get to that, but uh, I mean everything about Goldberg really fit from his sports background. I mean, me being a huge Georgia Bulldog and a Falcons fan. Uh, that certainly helped that he played for both those teams, and then uh, I, I really liked him a lot. So, uh, Scott, if you can uh, fill us in on your history as a wrestling fan. Be prepared. This goes all the way back to the 30s. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, a, I'm actually a little older than, than Justin. I started watching, uh, probably this will blow a lot of people away to do podcasts, but my first experience was uh, summer of 1983. Wow. Uh, I was sitting in my uh, living room, and I was flipping the channels. Cartoons were over. And uh, the first guy I ever saw cut a promo was Magnificent Morocco, who was cutting a promo. He was the Intercontinental Champion at the time, and he was uh, – uh, obviously, he was just starting the feud with Jimmy Snuka. And that was the episode, the infamous one, where Snuka jump, uh, planches, I guess, uh, from the ring and jumps Morocco and then rips his suit off and hits him with the belt, and the feud like just raged from there. And I remember thinking, wow, this is kind of neat. I wonder what this is, guys beating the hell out of each other. And – um then uh, that uh, that fall, which was uh, October seventeenth, nineteen eighty three, on MS the MSG Network was the infamous uh, house show uh, with uh, Snooka jumping off the top of the cage, and at that point, that was it. This was my new hobby, and I've been watching ever since. And again, this I, I'm pretty much uh, I was a WWF guy from the start. However, uh, I also watched uh, NWA in the uh, uh, in the eighties. I mean, again, right during this time on Saturday nights. And uh, it was a funny fan because I liked all the baby faces in the WWF, but I would put on uh, NWA at night, and I loved all the heels. I was not a Dusty Rhodes guy. I was not a Magnum TA guy. I loved uh, all the horsemen and all the guys we're going to talk about tonight. Right. And uh, and pretty much I've you know, I've been a fan ever since. Uh, again, living in Connecticut, you're right. I mean, you know, the Titan Towers is, you know, eight exits from my house. So, uh, you know, I, I'm in the shadows of Vince McMahon's legacy. But, uh, yeah, the first live show I went to was uh, December of 86. It was a Saturday Night's Men event taping, and it was the one where uh, Hulk Hogan defended the title against Paul Orndorff in the cage when both their feet hit at the same time. And my brother, my oldest, my older brother, who was the only uh, Paul Orndorff fan of the whole building, actually had popcorn <laughs> thrown at him. I thought that was kind of cool. Uh, and me, He's a hero the, of mine. Yes. Uh, and, uh, me, of course, the Kool-Aid drinking Hulkamaniac uh, uh, was uh, very excited when he won. Um However, I didn't go to my first pay-per-view until No Way Out 2000 because uh, they didn't come to Hartford that often. So, um, But uh, I went to dun- tons of house shows and all that. But uh, ECW, unlike Justin, ECW I caught pretty early on because they were, they were on the MSG network. So I caught them in like 95 uh, after I graduated college. But just like him, where he's in his wheelhouse is when I was, was not as watching as much because I was in school. And I caught up with it afterwards. But uh, So yeah, I've been a fan. Oh my God, this will be my 30th year. Oh, I did just date myself. You're That's terrible. old as shit. Uh, yeah, I'm pretty damn old. But, uh, yeah, 30, 30 years now I've been a wrestling fan. So uh, I've seen everything, anything, Mid-South, uh, 
UWF, Herb Abrams, God only knows what else, midgets, <laughs> you name it, I've watched it. <laughs> and uh, um, I, I got a couple of questions actually. Uh, first of all, um, one of the things I've always found, I mean, I, I'm in the UK here, as you uh, as you know. One of the things I've always found as a wrestling fan is that it's kind of a secret. You know, I don't really tell anybody. I mean, I have a webcast, I have a podcast on the internet, but I don't tell anybody about it. You know, um, how open are you in, in your kind of fandom? <laughs> oh, everybody knows. It's 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 what makes me. <laughs> and I don't care. If anybody knows. I don't really care. That's uh, definitely more open than I am. I uh, I don't I don't hide it, but I don't go out of my way. Uh, he he basically marches around work like Triple H and everything else. So. <laughs> uh, walk in the door. I uh, I I handshake my uh, myself into the day, and then I step in front of my desk and I spit water and sit down. So pretty cool. I'm terrified, but no. And then he nails the boss's daughter, and it's great. Yeah, uh, yeah. I wish. I wish I had that kind of clout. Um. But uh, yeah, I don't. I, I think it's. I think it's also based on my my sports teams because I root for a lot of teams that are fairly bad. So I always tell people, you know, I need something to fall back on when when I'm a Mets fan. I, I hear your your apologies there. Uh, so by the early summertime, usually I'm I'm done with baseball and I need something to hold me over till football starts, and that's usually wrestling. So wrestling's always been my fallback when my sports teams are fairly lousy. So. Uh, it's kind of a running joke with my friends and family, so I, I don't I don't care who knows. It doesn't phase me. I mean, look, during the Attitude Era, you were, uh, uh, you know, you were pretty cool that you knew stuff before the Attitude Era. Now it's back to kind of, oh, you like wrestling? That's nice. It's not, I don't. <laughs> it's embarrassing. It's more like, it's more like, oh wow, you like wrestling? That's kind of cool. Do you remember? Uh, do you remember Andre the Giant? Yeah, he died like twenty years ago. You know that kind of thing. You know, but <laughs> I, I feel. I tell people that's. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I got to be honest. One of the reasons that I never tell people that I'm a wrestling fan is because I don't want to have the conversation where they tell me, "Oh, that's all fake, right?" I mean, oh, yeah. it's just like I don't want to go through it. I just uh, it, it's something I never asked you actually, Chad. What, what are you open with your fandom in everyday life? Um, I mean, like obviously my closest friends who are not fans know. Uh, know about my fandom just because, I mean, once you kind of step into my house and see the thousands of DVDs, uh, it's kind of, you sort of have to admit that it's wrestling, so they don't think it's anything worse or anything, uh, but, uh, but like at work, I, nobody knows that I'm a wrestling fan or nothing, so. And it's definitely, it's like, there are people that know I'm a fan, but they don't know to the extent that I, like, yeah, like uh, Chad said, just the, the number of DVDs and tapes and podcast and everything else the message board and the reviews like i mean that's like deep like that's only a certain level of, of people know all that but uh you know some know i like wrestling and i'll go to events and talk about it you know briefly but not to the uh the extent but i agree with you parv that you just don't want to have that conversation you know we know it's fake we don't care that we're we're in on it but you don't need to break the news to us well that's funny i got a funny story about that when i was in seventh grade um i uh my seventh grade teacher uh, gave us a, a, a paper, like a, 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 a report on what the coolest thing we did during the year was. This was 19, the end of 1986, and or the spring of 86. And uh, I wrote on going to WrestleMania 2. I went closed circuit with my dad. It was actually the first live thing technically I went to, even though it wasn't a live show uh, in terms of people. Um, it was the first live, it was the first wrestling event I ever went to. It was the closed circuit of WrestleMania 2 at the uh, New Haven Coliseum. So I wrote that, and all my friends, and we were all wrestling fans. Everyone thought that was kind of neat. We were high-fiving each other. And our teacher, it's like our teacher goes, well, you do know that they're really not fighting. It's all. <laughs> and I'm thinking, and I'm, I, I kind of knew. But I'm looking at everybody going, it's like telling you that there's no Santa Claus. Why, why can't you just shut up about it? You know, like people, 
people back then were just kind of obnoxious about it. Now I don't think people care as much. But all of us, all of us guys in the back of the room, we're all you know twelve years old or thirteen years old, and we look at each other like, did she really just say that? I thought like like horseman style her and like slam her ankle into the uh, desk drawer or something. But uh, you know it, things like that. At this point, people we all know that it's fake. It's part of the whole lexicon of of pop culture. But um, I concur that uh, it depends who you ask. You know. I mean, one of the things I always remember in school was that um, there was a moment where wrestling was kind of in, in the same way that like yo-yos were in, you know, um, for about six months, and then um, literally, uh, you know, almost on the turn of a six months, nobody was interesting anymore. It's like it was a fad that came and went, and then once it had gone, it was the uncoolest thing on earth. Uh, and for me, I mean, in the UK, it more or less co- coincided with Lex Luger's Lex Express run. Um, so by like SummerSlam '93, nobody was watching apart from me. Did you guys have a period like that where, you know, everybody was into it and then nobody was? Uh, yeah. When I first got into it in like 1990, it was kind of big in my school. Um, by the end of '91, it had faded. But I, I think here in America, the biggest and Chad can probably back us up. The biggest boom was obviously like '98, '99, 2000. Uh, it was just everywhere. People wore the shirts publicly, and it was just crazy for us all of a sudden to all be outed in a way. <laughs> we were all like, you know, uh, creeping along through 95 and 96, and all of a sudden everything explodes, and you see shirts, and uh, everyone's talking about it, and the, the ratings go through the roof. And then, you know, you're flipping this through TV. You go to MTV, and WCW is on. You go to this, you know, VH1, and WDF is on. You go to NBC, and there's a commercial for Attitude Era. It's, it was out of control. You just never expected it to be uh, that big ever again. And it was, it was a crazy ride for those four years around here. And, and going back even further, I mean, we used to have the the original. Um, I don't know if it was Hasbro or Kenner had those original like big rubber wrestling guys, like the ones that you could bounce and everything. We used to bring those into school, and and you know, on the days when recess, when it was raining out, and we had recess inside. We used to just have matches at our desks with all our guys. And so in the '80s, it was definitely big because you could see it everywhere. I mean, obviously uh, MTV and ESPN would still back then would do either World Class or AWA. Then, like Justin said, you go through that, that hole where, you know, the product was kind of crappy and, and the, the, the casual fans faded. Yeah. And then, era again, I mean, I worked in radio for 10 years. So during the Attitude Era, you know, all, the, all our radio show guests at my local station, we used to get guys. I mean, we had Steve Austin on, Honky Tonk Man, DiBiase. Like, we had all these guys on. So then the boom came again. And now it's back down to half and half. I mean, John Cena and those kind of guys do have a, a mainstream feel, but... Um, at this point, you're either a wrestling fanny or not. There's no, I don't think there's real casuals anymore. You're either a fanny or not. I don't see it the casual anymore like it was in even yeah. 15. Okay. Well, uh, th- thanks a lot for that. Uh, Chad, you any, you got any questions for Scott before we uh, we move on here? Um, I don't. Just uh, real quickly, I'll just say since they talked about ECW and we haven't talked about that, I'm kind of. Uh, in the same boat with Justin. We never had ECW television till they were on TNN. Uh, so I didn't see it till it was past its peak. And, uh, on the, on the place to be podcast as far as the vintage vault, I know you talked about that some early part, but the thing I kind of like about it is especially in the older shows. Um, I mean, I've seen these WWE shows countless times. So, it's it's really neat 
to kind of follow along with these shows kind of from a different perspective, sort of as kind of an alternate commentary. Yeah. That's one thing that I kind of see is when I go back and watch the shows, you can fire up the podcast to kind of coincide with the show. Uh, so that's something I really like. It's sort of like a guide map for these shows. Yeah, I, I, the, the other thing I like about the uh, the, the podcast is the, is the way that um, the way that uh, they're very good at tracking comings and goings. I think probably better than we are. You know, when a guy debuts, uh, you get kind of. Uh, a, you know, a full uh, rundown of what they did before, and when a guy leaves, they give the stats on, uh, on you know, their win and loss ratio. I think that's a really nice touch. But on that subject, why, uh, do, why don't you talk about how you actually started the podcast? Sure. Uh, Scott and I met, <clears throat> we worked together in Connecticut, uh, weren't really friendly until about August of 03, and uh, he, he comes over and I hear him fantasy booking some nonsense about making Steve Austin world champion a feudal with Goldberg and this whole thing he was on. Uh, and <laughs> I, about I had to talk him off the ledge. Uh, so we quickly became friends, because obviously as soon as you find a diehard wrestling fan, you hook onto it. Um, so over the next year, we really got pretty close. We went to WrestleMania 20 together, uh, hung out a lot, and Scott decided uh, he was going to start. I guess were you, you were waiting for DirecTV to be installed or something, so you had no yes. cable. And Yeah, I had no cable. He was just going to start watching old pay-per-views and writing reviews for them, six or seven of us of his friends, so... You know, his first one was WrestleMania 5, and it was brutal. So oh, I'm like, terrible. I'm like, I can do better this shit, so I'm going to do it too. So we started doing it together, and our first, you know, few years of them uh, in wrestling chronology were, were rough. But once we get into, like, the 92, 93 shows, we really started getting in a groove. And I started publicizing them more. I started, we started our own message board, and um, it, it really kind of took off as far as hits. Graham Cawthon played a big role in the history of WWE. He started plugging our stuff. Um, and I, I just go around to different message boards and, you know, Scott Keith helped us as well early on. So we just were putting up our reviews and, um, you know, kind of took off. And then all of a sudden in, oh, I moved back to Rhode Island in 05. So we're still doing the written reviews for a few years and our message board is building a fan base. And I think it was what, late 2010 or mid 2010, Scott was doing a internet radio show yeah. for his friend that has a station and the shows are really good, but the concept to me was was just dated because he'd tell me oh my show airs tuesdays at 11 and thursdays at five and i'm like i can't listen at these times I'm like this is very <laughs> you know bad times for me i'm at work or driving home i don't have access to the internet radio station um so i said i, I think you're wasting your time with this i said you're putting out all this great quality products and you know no one's listening and we were doing the vintage vaults i joined him and uh his friend johnny that was hosting co-hosting and we were doing these vintage vaults, and I'm like, I don't think anyone's even listening to this. I said, I think we're wasting our time. I said, why don't we try a podcast? I'm like, I think it could really work. I think this is where uh, the future of this, you know, uh, business is going as far as, you know, talking on the radio. I, I thought radio to me was kind of a dead, dead end, um, yeah. unless you're a veteran or you're in, have been in the business for a while, which I, I guess Scott had. But um, anyway, I digress. So February 11th starts, and we, we decided to uh, plug in the microphone. We got Skype. Uh, got a Podbean account, and it just kind of took off from there. And if you go back and listen to some of those early ones, uh, definitely very rough, not uh, not even close to where we are now, I don't <laughs> think. But no. I just credit all our fans. I mean, we had some ones early on that were really uh, kept us going because we weren't sure who was listening. And the hits started building, and then we had a couple interviews, and that really kind of started to put us on the map. I think Stevie Richards, the interview with him, was one of the first ones we started to gain some publicity from. Um, and then our fan base really started to grow. I just kept hitting up different message boards. And uh, we're to the point now where, you know, we have Kevin Kelly on as a regular guest, and we average, you know, when he's on, we almost get, like, over at least 2,000 hits alone on Podbean, plus all the other sites we're on. Uh, so it's really just, it's way bigger two years later than I ever expected it to be. 
Yeah, oh. Chad, you've said to me before that it's pretty much the only podcast you can think of, a wrestling podcast that's managed to build its own community, which is a quite an achievement, I think. Yeah, I mean, that's one thing that I really uh, kind of appreciate is, I mean, I, I heard word of mouth on another message board about uh, the podcast uh, probably about a year ago, but once you kind of get in and start listening, you kind of feel like you're part of a community. Uh, definitely, I think Scott and Justin are very good in their podcast and including uh, the commenters and people too, so you feel like you actually kind of have a place in the podcast also. Yeah, that was kind of one of our goals early. We wanted to build that family up, so we decided to uh, read the feedback, which at this point has become a, kind of a labor of love, I guess. <laughs> to get pre- get pretty long, and we had to kind of uh, scold our listeners a little bit and ask <laughs> them to, to tone it back a little. But, um, you know, we vowed from the beginning we were going to read the feedback because we wanted people to be included. And uh, I think it's important just to keep everyone engaged, and that's why we started the Facebook page. And, and we're to the point now that we're going to WrestleMania this year in April, and we actually have a group of like 22 guys that listen to the show that are all attending. So we're all gonna, you know, set up some events to visit with each other, and um, it's really just, it's really cool. It's it. My favorite part is how all these guys have become friends with each other, not just through us. Like I laugh when I see, you know, one of our guys comment on his Facebook page, and someone that he only met through this podcast community. You know, they go back and forth on their Facebook page separately from the podcast, and to me, that's the coolest part that we've kind of helped all these guys that maybe don't have a lot of friends locally that like wrestling and you'll hear that from a lot of them yeah. also have a place to talk about this have a place to go and you know we've become close to a lot of them and it's it's really cool to I me mean, that's a favorite part of um, this whole adventure that we've been on yeah we got to, we one of your big commenters uh goes by uh, smack 2k you know brian samick uh we, we he did uh, four or five shows with us uh you know and uh it was it and as I was listening through your shows, I realized it was the same guy who was commenting on uh, commenting big time. So, um, yeah, no, I, I think it's a really it, that's never been an aim of this uh, of, of this podcast to grow a community in that way. Um, but we have uh, recently been uh, starting to read some comments, although um, I don't know, <laughs> I don't know, but uh, for whatever reason, I I feel a lot more awkward doing it than you guys uh, managed to. Um, it seems to be a lot more natural when you guys do it than uh, when I try to read comments. <laughs> um, so the sh- sh- situation for us is uh, is we kind of know the, these guys on on the Facebook page, so we know who to like pick on, and we know who to compliment, and we know who to like mimic. Like we have a great one of our favorite guys, another one of your fellow countrymen, uh, um, yeah. Parv, a uh, guy by the name of James Mander. Uh, we always call him the King because he seems to have this very regal way of speaking. So we call him King James Mander. We do we talk like in this regal voice, and they all have their own. The great thing about it is they all have their own like little identities, their own little gimmicks. And I think that I think that's another thing that I think they love about the show is that we kind of make them feel special. They're not just a bunch of dudes that listen. Uh, and a couple we have a couple of girls that listen to. Uh, you know, it, it's a lot of fun just to see them all act like, oh my god, we're part of this thing. And 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 Justin's right, just seeing like, you know, we were going through. Uh, uh, the Facebook page last night, and these two guys are having this discussion about Rumble 91, just randomly. And those are the things that you feel satisfying about, that we're starting to, like, that we invigorate these guys just to talk about random things. That's what we like to do. We like we could throw anything in. It could be anything. Unless it's AWA, then we really don't want to throw it in. But <laughs> we put anything in. NWA, WCW, WWF, it doesn't matter what era, ECW, Mid-South, doesn't matter. World class. Um, anything but AWA. That I think we. I don't. Uh, I don't think we. I think our uh, listeners would would probably jump off a bridge. Uh, <laughs> we had to try uh, to do an AWA show. Any particular reason you don't like AWA? 
It's a very tough, and you know, I got my opinion about it from Mick Foley. He said it too. I mean, it's a very tough, you know, Vern Gagne was a very dry guy. I mean, he was the very old school way of thinking, you know, 35-minute matches with guys that didn't really have gimmicks and a lot of rest holds. It's just very hard to, it's very hard to project uh, in a show when you're not actually watching it. So if you're a listener and, you know, Justin and I are going over the brawl in St. Paul and you're like, and it's a match between Boris Zukov and whatever that other guy was we were watching last night. <laughs> Uh, you're like, what the hell? And, and they're in a headlock. And remember when Boris Zukov was with Nikolai? We start referring to other federations just to keep yourself. You know, later on, he joined Nikolai Volkov, and eventually I, you don't even care about the show. I, I find that I like the concept of AWA better than the actual product itself. I, I like that it existed and what it was. Um, it's just nothing I clamor to go back and watch for whatever reason. I try. I really do, and I just, I don't know, I just, I can't get into it for some reason. You laugh at their jobbers like Jake the Milkman Milliman, you know, and, and <laughs> rock and roll Buck Zoom off, and you're like, but the difference is in other federations, they're pretty much jobber fodder, but Vern treated them like, we got a hot opener tonight with one of our up-and-comers, Buck Zumhoff. You're thinking, up-and-comers, please. The guy's been in the business like 15 years, he's laid down for everybody, but the janitor and the catering crew. So, <laughs> it's so funny how how Vern took a lot of this stuff so seriously, and you're like, you're not going to last much longer than that. And and eventually, as obviously, the, the business passed him by, but um, anything else we could just throw in. And uh, Anyway, the whole point of it is, is that's how these guys are. They just find something to throw in and just watch it. And, and that's, that's I feel, it's very satisfying when we can create something like that. And I think bragging about having a couple women listeners is sadder than not having any. Just before we move on, I mean, I've started, I've, I've, I haven't got very far into the uh, DVDR AC's AWA set, uh, but I have watched, uh, I think, the first disc or so. How far have you got, Chad? Uh, would you agree with uh, what the guys were saying there about AWA? Yeah, and just for a point of reference with uh, Scott and Justin, uh, the website, com. what they do is they kind of nominate, uh, they have a nominating committee that picks the 150, usually uh, top matches of the 80s from the different promotions, uh, and then put them all on DVDs, and then you watch them all and rank them uh, 1 to 150. Uh, so the one that's current right now is the AWA, and it's it's been kind of t- a tough go for me to get into. I'm about a disc in also, uh, so only about ten to twelve matches. Yeah, it it's for for somebody like me who's not um, keen on mat work and never have been. Um, yeah, it, it's 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 reasonably. T- it, it's not. I, I wouldn't say I find it tough going, but I just find that I, I'm drawn to watch other other stuff. You know. Um, but I, I will try to go back to it. I'm determined. I'm deter- once I've said I've taken part, I w- I'm determined to get to the end. So I will. Maybe I'll get a more positive opinion of. Uh, I, I I remember Bri- Brian uh, Brian Samek, who I mentioned. He was a big AWA fan. So um, you know th- it de- it does have its fans. Um, but d- just before we move on, uh, d- I'm going to uh, mention some stuff from the Wrestling Observers. Uh, maybe we can comment it, uh, on it as we go along. Um, but speaking of uh, comments, I do have a couple here, um, and I'll I'll just read them out um, because uh, there's an ongoing saga. A, a few shows ago, um, I think it was on the was it the Clash One show? Um, a, a guy uh, was on as a guest um, on the Clash show, Lyle Alzado. Do either of you guys know who Lyle Alzado is? Yeah, he was an NFL guy. He played in the NFL for a long time. He was with the Raiders. Uh, he was with Denver and Cleveland. Uh, he passed away 
oh, I don't know, 10 years ago, maybe a little yeah. longer than that. And he was one of the first uh, NFL steroid casualties. Uh, he was one of the first guy, first uh, well-known NFL players who actually died as a result of steroid use. So also supposed to do the WCW wrestling sitcom, right? The Inside the Ropes or whatever. Yeah, and that was the reason that he was on the Clash show. Um, but obviously, me being from the UK, I had no idea. And uh, Chad committed the cardinal sin of saying that he didn't think Lyle Azada was that big a star. Um, oh. So uh, I'd say of all the comments we've had, maybe 50% have been to do with Lyle Alzado. <laughs> so uh, this is NWA fan who's just posted on the blog site. He said, wow, Lyle Alzado was a huge name in the 70s and 80s. He played football for the Oakland Raiders, was famous for being huge and acted. Instead of just saying, I don't know this guy, why don't you do a Google search? He was Lawrence Taylor. Chad, you said he wasn't like Lawrence Taylor. Um, he said, sometimes you guys just seem to write everything off because it wasn't around in 1992 or WWF wasn't involved. So, <laughs> any comment to NWA fan there, Chad? <laughs> well, I mean, I'll just say, I mean, I, I was born in 1986. So, I mean, my history, obviously, with his playing career is non-existent. And as far as his reputation and NFL legacy, I don't think, he has as big a legacy as someone like Lawrence Taylor or Dick Butkus, uh, some of these type of NFL names in the past. That doesn't mean he wasn't a big star. I mean, obviously we found out he was a pretty big star. I mean, but, uh, I mean, two-time Pro Bowl selection. I mean, I don't know. Maybe that's, and four times all AFC I'm looking at now. That's, that's, I mean, I would say that's definitely a star, but, I mean, just looking at his Wikipedia page, I wouldn't look at that and say, oh, that's a superstar. Because, for instance, uh, the Atlanta Falcons right now have a defensive end named John Abraham, who's been to as many Pro Bowls, and he's been all uh, NFC a couple of times. And, I mean, I would say he's a star on the team of the Atlanta Falcons, but I wouldn't expect him to be a household name or anything. And Alzado, too, it seems like he's kind of been... Uh... I don't want to say buried in NFL history. I don't know because because of steroid stuff or you know, the way he spoke it afterwards. But you don't really hear much about him when you watch like retrospective shows or anything to do with the uh, NFL films or anything. You don't you don't hear too much about him. So maybe we should stop talking about it though because I, I don't want to flood you with even more hate mail. This <laughs> <laughs> is one of those things. I, I guess you guys have found this as well. You make a mistake about something that you know people are uh, happy to talk about but, the uh, the mistake, right? But um, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I quite enjoy the fact that uh, Lyle Alzado features uh, heavily in these comments. <laughs> anyway, uh, our buddy Shu, uh, he says, um, "This is I go through the observers every uh, every week, uh, kind of just before uh, the show happened. One of the things we noticed that Meltzer always compares the rating that the Clash show has <clears throat> with the recent Braves game. Um, mm-hmm. And Shu said that Meltzer always comparing ratings to Brave games there are two reasons for this. First off, Brave Games were by far the most pushed thing on the station, um, oh, yeah. calling the Braves America's team. Uh, it's kind of similar to when ECW and Roller Jam were on TNN at the same time. Roller Jam was pushed more, but ECW got better ratings. Also, during the baseball season, wrestling would get bumped around uh, for the game. So in essence, they are bumping the higher rated show to show baseball. Secondly, it's 1988, and there is nothing really to compare wrestling ratings to. Uh, for the most part, TBS was showing Andy Griffin, Brady Bunch, and Leave It to Beaver, 
or first run shows like New Leave It to Beaver um, <laughs> with uh, with Jason Hervey, and uh, then our um, good Helmer, uh, A.K.A. Will, says as an 11 year old uh, kid, I totally bought the America Team bullshit. I also created America's team with the Cowboys. Therefore, my hatred for the Cowboys eventually extended to the Braves as well. <laughs> um, now, I have no idea what any of that means, but Chad, uh, <laughs> any uh, any response to Shoe there? <laughs> well, I, well, I, I kind of, I kind of good that Scott's on because I'm sure he'll appreciate the dig at uh, his Cowboys. Uh, so that's nice. But uh, I mean, I, I'm obviously an Atlanta Braves fan, uh, being in, in Georgia and. I can certainly see that. I, I, I did appreciate that he told us that they actually did bump WCW uh, for the Atlanta Braves games because that gives kind of a frame of reference of why he would compare uh, that WCW outrated them because I was just kind of confused with that because I knew in the 80s the Braves teams were absolutely putrid and uh, didn't get good until the 1991 season. Interesting, because at the time, I mean, the Braves, <clears throat> being up here in the Northeast, you could watch them every night because TBS aired them nationally. I mean, something you would never see nowadays. Uh, so it was, I mean, I won't say it was America's team in the fact that everyone rooted for them, but in a way it was America's team because I think everyone across the country had access to all 162 of their games. And I did get annoyed when they had Saturday night games and it bumped uh, WCW as well. So I always found it funny on a side note to extend this that um, – in like 1996, 1997, that TNT even bumped Nitro, which was their most rated show, or cut Nitro off to add the NBA playoffs. I would have thought that maybe they would like start Nitro earlier in the night and keep it two hours when it was two hours before it was three, and then add the, and then have the playoffs afterwards. Well, they did sometimes. They would air from seven to eight. Did they go from seven to eight? Yeah. But I mean, would they even go from? Well, that was when it was an hour. But when they were like eight to ten. No, they cut it from two hours to one and aired at seven to eight. Oh, okay. See, I would have thought they would go even earlier just to keep the full time, but. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it, you, you took the words out of my mouth, though, Chad, when you said about the Braves. I'm thinking they, TBS pumped the Braves so much in the when the NWA was so hot. Meanwhile, the Braves were absolutely unwatchable. <laughs> Yet they were America's team. I always thought that was pretty funny, too. I, I thought America's team were Dusty Rhodes and Magnum TA. Well, there we are. <laughs> Talk about that, too. <laughs> so, um, uh, speaking of Meltzer, uh, let me uh, quickly go through the observers then before we get into Starcade 88. Uh, this is from the uh, December the 12th, uh, 88 Observer, um, and I'd, I should have uh, really gone through this on the Clash 4 show, but um, I, uh, I didn't have uh, time. Um, so, this is a big piece of news. Nikita Koloff quit the promotion, thank God, because uh, he sucked in 1988, um, because of travel problems. He didn't want to drive from Charlotte to Atlanta all of the time. He also thought he was about to be buried uh, because he was in the doghouse with Crockett, with, uh, with Jim Crockett Jr. Um, and uh, that actually created the vacancy that JYD filled tagging with uh, Ivan Koloff. So um, that actually explains why JYD was brought in and uh, where Nikita Koloff is, why he's not on the card. Um, Meltzer thinks that um, bringing in Junkyard Dog is a terrible idea um, because obviously he's an old star and he's over the hill and they should be thinking about creating new stars, and uh, to be honest, he's probably right. Um, so d just just while we're on this t topic, any thoughts on Nikita Koloff? Because um, I have seen him get better, and then get, re like, I really hate him when he's got hair, and uh, drops that weight, and um, basically up until this point, he's terrible in 1988. Any, any thoughts, uh, Scott and Justin? 
I was uh, I was a little surprised as well. I didn't like the whole flat top uh, Koloff either. I thought he was much more menacing when he was clean shaven. Um, but again, I think uh, I think Nikita Koloff by '88 was starting to, you know, there was a changing of the guard there. I mean, obviously, uh, and I think the case was true with Nikolai Volkov. Uh, once the whole uh, communism fell and the the wall, you know, the wall and and the Soviet Union fell. Um, any Russian antagonism kind of faded, and it became very uh, trite. So uh, he obviously maybe saw that coming. And uh, but if he didn't want to travel, I mean, it's not like they were traveling far; they were still fairly regional. So you know, if you couldn't deal with driving from Charlotte to Atlanta, well, tough. <laughs> That's pretty much what I would say. Um, Chad, are you glad to see the back of him as well? Yeah, I mean, I, I think by '88. He lost a lot of his heat, and so uh, probably best that he moved along. So, so another uh, piece of news here is that the angle where um, Dusty's eye got spiked by the Royal Warriors um, got 315 negative calls, basically complaints, um, uh, to uh, TBS, which is the most that they had since Black Saturday in 1984 when Vince took over the uh, Georgia TBS lot. Um, and this actually uh, was one of the reasons why Dusty was fired uh, as the booker around this time. And uh, I mean, did, did you guys know this that Jim Crockett Jr. booked this show uh, himself? No, I wasn't aware of that. Uh, I wasn't either. I thought he just did the money side of it. Uh, yeah, um, I don't know, maybe him and David were having issues or something. There, I don't know, but there, I didn't know that he actually handled it himself. Well, there's a little transition period um, before, uh, and and it Meltzer actually goes on to explain it in this very uh, newsletter. He says that they're going to go with a plan now into 1989 to book with a committee. Um, with Flair as a key player on the committee. Um, Meltzer thinks that both things, that, that is the idea of a committee itself and having Flair on it, are a bad idea. Uh, and he's, he's got quite a lot on this, but he, the main reason he thinks it's a bad idea is that Flair is just too busy to um, you know, book five hours of TV every week, as well as be a world champ, travel around, uh, you know, work 45-minute broadways every night, etc. So he's probably right as well. Um, but, uh, well, you say that, but I think 1989 is generally remembered as a pretty good year um, for the promotion. Um, so, yeah, I, and I think that really uh, the writing is on the wall for Dusty um, and uh, Turner. The uh, December 26th newsletter doesn't have a lot in it. Uh, it just said that Clash 4 got 217 million viewers. Um, and uh, that le that leads us on to the Starcade, uh, the uh, one where we actually review Starcade, and he just tells us that um, the the show got uh, ten thousand people uh, in a venue that holds thirteen thousand, um, which is uh, not good news because they used to regularly sell that, sell it out, uh, and I think it's the Scope, right? The Scope in Norfolk. Yes. Um, yep. Norfolk, Virginia. The Scope. Um, yeah, it, uh, it used to they they used to sell that out basically with a regular show, just normal live shows, um, and now obviously Starcade is their big show and they can't fill it out with thirteen thousand people, um, which he basically says is evidence that um, you know Dusty's booking in nineteen eighty eight had really been like kind of helped to kill business uh, for the company, um, but it was their biggest uh, gate since July. Um, so that's not that's not bad, and the the last bit of news he has is that inbound uh, for the new year, 
Butch Reed, Brian Pillman, Michael Hayes, Steve Casey, and possibly Terry Gordy. So those are the guys who who are who are coming in. Right, so let's move on. Uh, December the 26th, 1988, the Scope, Norfolk, Virginia. 1980, uh, Starcade 88, True Grit. Uh, our first match, um, oh, in fact, before we have our first match, uh, I don't know, what version of the show did you watch? I, I seem to watch the original um, kind of live broadcast, because it had a bit of kind of hype stuff with Steiner and Kevin Sullivan at the start. Did you guys have that? We had, I, I watched the pay-per-view version. I mean, none of the matches were clipped on mine. Yeah, we have the Classics on Demand version, so we yeah. don't have that hype at the beginning, but ours are uh, uncut as well. Yeah. So, well, I got a little bit of hype, basically, with Kevin Sullivan and Rick Steiner. Did you get this, Chad? No, probably not. Yeah, I got oh, that. Um, he, uh, Sullivan says, you were, you were always the one... Uh, sorry, Rick Steiner wasn't there. Kevin Sullivan is there with Mike Rotunda, and they're talking about Rick Steiner. He says, you were always the one, Rick Steiner, um, that we used to take out the back and slap around. Um, and Rotunda says, the reason that you're not in the varsity club anymore is that is because you're stupid. Um, <laughs> Sullivan, Sullivan wants Rotunda to crush Alex, uh, which if you don't know is um, Rick Steiner's left hand <laughs> um, with a little face on it. Um, Rick Steiner also has a little uh, promo here, and he says that Alex has got his back. Um, and then we get an opening montage um, with lots of promos kind of laid over the top of footage from the competitors of the upcoming matches, um, which is immediately a very different presentation from the sort of thing that we've seen in the previous uh, five or six years. Um, and it, I've noticed an immediate change uh, with the Turner presentation um, from the uh, Crockett, you know, the traditional Crockett presentation. There's a lot more promos, as we'll see in the show coming up. A host, Tony Schiavone and Magnum TA, um, and they say that all five titles are going to be defended tonight. Um, and I counted that's the world, the US, the TV, the world tag, and the US tag belts. Commentators are Jim Ross and Bob Coddle. And our ring announcer uh, is Gary Michael Capetta, who I'm a big fan of. And I, I'm also a big fan of the interview that you guys did with uh, Capetta. Uh, I, I find that really interesting. Um, and I think I've... I think this is proof now, Chad, that Tom Miller is gone. We don't see him again. Scott and Justin, did do you know Tom Miller, the uh, the ring announcer? Yeah, he was the older guy with the glasses. Yeah, is he is he gone now? Is he completely? Uh, does he come back at all from your memory? I don't think so. I think at this point, um, I think Capetta pretty much goes for till the. I would say till the mid '90s or whenever you know when we when we had him on. Um, I think Tom Miller was almost like the house guy for the Greensboro Coliseum, and he must have done other stuff too. But um, I'm pretty sure that this is a uh, this is that was it for him. And I think uh, Capetta uh, pretty much goes from here on out. I think that's when they kind of get more nationally known, and uh, the the WCW influence comes in, even though they weren't named yet. Uh, and I think they were trying to kind of get get rid of some of the old Southern feel. Yeah, and that's Brock Capetta in. Yeah, and he's there right through. I think he's just what they're ninety-five. Yeah, till ninety-five. Until they bring in uh, Michael Buffer, who I'm not a big fan of. Well, was Buffer and well, the Buffer they started to use to work Capetta out of the bigger matches, and then 
Penzer, Dave Penzer was the guy they brought in to, to fully replace Capetta full time. He was kind of Capetta's protege. Uh, GMT spoke very highly of Penzer on the on when we talked to him. Yeah, I hated that when they um, when they'd uh, bring in Buffo and he would just do the main event. That yeah, I mean, I guess I get what they were going for, but it was hard to to replace Capetta. He was so good, and it's also hard to to spend that kind of money on one guy in one match. I'm sure Buffer never came cheap. So no. the, the, the one thing I did always dislike about Buffer is that no matter how many cards he did, no matter how many wrestling shows he did, he always gave the impression that he didn't give a shit, that he didn't have a clue what was going on. That he, like, if he didn't have that car with him, he would be completely lost. You know? Do you know what I mean? It's like he never learned anything. The founder of mania. Yeah. Um, okay, so d- as we get into this, um, it's uh, the first match is um, the Fantastics versus. No, just really quick, this is the first one. Uh, Starcade in December, right? Bumped out of November due to uh, the issues in '87 with the Survivor Series. Oh yeah, no, that, that's that, that's a good point. So they're no longer going head to head with Survivor Series. They've uh, decided to go for a post Christmas show. Um, and uh, Chad, you've said before that uh, you always liked the kind of Thanksgiving tradition of Starcade. Well, I, um, that was more Survivor Series. Uh, growing up as a WWF fan, when I first started watching, I uh, was like 91, 92. So I kind of always remembered like on Thanksgiving Eve, my mom and grandma would be kind of prepping the food and stuff like that. And Survivor Series would be going on. So it's kind of good memories. Thanksgiving a wrestling time for you guys as well? Uh, that was actually the one pay-per-view that, that I never watched. My mother was very strict about, uh, you know, I was actually never home Thanksgiving night. I would usually go to my aunt's house. Um, when Survivor Series went to the Civic Center here in Hartford, or here in Hartford, in Hartford in 1990, my brother actually went, but he was older than me and he got to do what he wanted. So I, I actually never watched Survivor Series live until, uh, Oh, God, Montreal, I think, was the first Survivor Series I actually watched live. I usually got the tape, you know, like a month later. But, uh, um, yeah, so I never, I didn't, the tradition for me that time of year was not till the late 90s. By the time I started watching religiously, um, Survivor Series, really, I mean, 90 was was the first one I was a fan for, but that was also the last one on Thanksgiving night. So for me, it wasn't either. It actually became a good Thanksgiving Eve tradition for me because the next few years, my birthday is in early December. So my parents would use that as kind of uh, an option for me to have a birthday party and have some of my friends over on Thanksgiving Eve, and we'd watch Survivor Series, and a few of them would stay over, and you know we'd watch wrestling into the night. So uh, to me, it almost became more of a Thanksgiving Eve tradition. I was pretty upset in '95 when they moved it off uh, to Sunday. So um, as this is started, it said the Fantastic versus um, the Varsity Club, Kevin Sullivan and Steve Williams. Um, and as uh, as this starts, I noticed the Fantastic still seem to be getting a lot of booze. Um, which is kind of, uh, the last time we saw them, they were a little bit heelish. Um, but I don't think they were meant to be booed here at all. Um, Ross calls this a uh, power versus a speed and quickness uh, battle. Um, it's Sullivan and Fulton to start. Um, and we get a, uh, a shot of Jason Hervey here. And uh, he seems to have grown quite a bit in the 20 days or so since uh, the Clash War show. It's like he uh, became an adult in that time. Oh, was I seeing things there? <laughs> um, it, uh, it's Steve Williams and um, Tommy Rogers now. Uh, still quite tentative. Uh, Fulton comes back in. Uh, w- Williams military presses him five or six times. I notice on this show that Jim Ross uh, consistently called the Gorilla Slam a military press. Is there a difference between those two moves that anybody knows of? 
Um, <clears throat> I don't think so. I think it mostly just goes by who the announcer is. Yeah, uh, but, obviously, Gorilla used to call it a Gorilla Press. Um, I think it based on promotion. I think a lot of moves were like that back in those days. I think depending what what region you're you're watching or what region the announcers are from is how you know. Some people call it a small package. Some people call it a inside cradle. It all depends on the announcer, I think. But I always knew it as a as a Gorilla Press. Yeah, but he seemed to be calling it Gorilla Slam last show. But he's moved to military press here, so maybe he got a note saying, "Don't say." Uh, maybe is, is military press more? They do like the pumping. Is that? Uh, I'm not sure what he did here at this show, but um, I always thought that was more of a military press where they lift them like straight up and kind of pump and then throw them up and down, the yeah. Kind of hold them up and just drop them. Yeah, well, I, yeah. I mean, Will it, Steve Williams here did pump him like five or six times, so maybe that is a military press. Um, I think so. Th- he'll stay on top for the next few minutes. Um, uh, Rogers is our face in peril. Um, Bob Coddle is uh, basically blaming Kevin Sullivan for turning Williams and Rotunda from what he says are nice guys to animals in the ring. Uh, Ross says that Sullivan uh, has spent a lot of time in Singapore. Uh, I don't know why he tells us that, but he does. Um, we get a big suplex from Williams on Rogers, which gets a two. Um, quite a messy sequence now between Fulton and Sullivan uh, before Williams comes in uh, with a bear hug. Ross says uh, that Steve Williams is the most recruited football uh, linesman coming out of high school ever, or something. Um, Rogers and Sullivan uh, uh, go head-to-head now. Um, Sullivan slams from the top, uh, but gets his knees up as Rogers uh, splashes uh, from the top rope. We get more uh, double-teaming from the Varsity Club, a reverse chin-lock from Sullivan. Uh, Ross is uh, going on about um, Sullivan's college, college background now. Um, he seems to have like detailed stats on uh, every single guy's college background. Do you think Jim Ross had notes on this, or that he just like knew this stuff? <laughs> I, I think he knew it, and then he maybe jotted it down. But he definitely seems uh, to have an affinity for college athletics and college backgrounds, because that'd become one of his hallmarks uh, as well. And I, I thought the Singapore stuff was interesting too, because he kind of talks about how Sullivan learned mind control over there, and that's how he's controlling these guys in the varsity club. So, you know, whether it's kind of, I talked about this on our last show, whether it's fake or real, I, I always enjoy the, the backstories that these announcers <laughs> give the wrestlers. We, we, Steve Williams from Oklahoma, is an Oklahoma guy, and, and, you know, JR bleeds sooner a uh, maroon. So, uh, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't hard to, to gush over Steve Williams. Although in this match, you know, he kind of had to toe the line as the babyface, and yeah. obviously Dr. Death turned his back and was a heel, uh, and so he, he even mentions at one point in the late 80s when Oklahoma football had to go on probation, uh, JR, who would never say that now, uh, actually refers to that, so he actually kind of used his, his fandom as a, as a kind of helping put over the, the um, uh, put over Steve Williams as a heel, so uh, it, it kind of worked out, it kind of worked for him in a lot of these cases. Now, maybe we can have a little talk later on about um, who JR loves more, Steve Williams or Lex Luger. But we, we, we'll talk about that in a bit. Um, we, we get a, tuple, uh, a couple of uh, nasty double stomps um, from uh, Sullivan. That's where he kind of jumps on the guy uh, with both his feet. Um, he uh, goes for a suplex, which is reversed. We get a hot tag to Fulton, uh, who is now on fire. Uh, he gets 10 punches in the corner on Williams. Um, Gets a sleeper on. Rogers sleepers uh, Sullivan. Uh, Fulton goes for a th- um, th- Thez press. And I noticed that Lou Thez was in the crowd and loads of guys were doing Thez presses this evening. 
um, which uh, is no coincidence, I reckon. Um, but uh, Williams hot shots uh, Fulton uh, for the three count, and we have new U.S. tag champs, and I think that's pretty much it for the Fantastics uh, as far as this run goes. Um, so this one didn't really grab me, but Chad, what do you think? Uh, I like this match a good deal. I uh, thought that it played off the kind of speed of the Fantastics versus the power of Dr. Death and uh, kind of the tactics used by Kevin Sullivan well. Um, one thing, uh, in the past few shows, we I know you've been really low on Dr. Death, but I thought he was really the best person in this match uh, by far. Uh, his power moves looked good. He uh, really looked like he was a beast in the match. The way he cut off Rogers' quick maneuvers I thought were really good. And uh, we also, last show, we kind of talked fondly about Bobby Fulton, and uh, we kind of may have spoke too soon because I thought he looked pretty bad in this match, especially at the end. Uh, it was really awkward right before the pin where uh, I guess they got their signals crossed or whatever, and then he kind of just lunged on Williams for the Thez press, and he shot, hot shot at him. Uh, it looked pretty bad, uh, but I, I like the match as a whole a pretty good bit. Scott? Uh, it, one thing before that I like about these NWA shows, so many title matches, and uh, you know they, they they branched off so many different types of belts. So the fact that we jump right in with a U.S. title tag title match is fun. Um, obviously the Bookers needed to keep the face heat on the Fantastics, as you mentioned, part they were getting booed vociferously over this this stretch. So they had to get in, you know, uh, Kevin Sullivan guys to really you know pump the the heel heat in. Um, I agree with Chad that the the match was very clumsy uh, at times. You know, I almost feel like instead of letting the fast guys dictate the pace in this match, they let the uh, uh, they let the slower guys take the pace. And when you do that, regardless of whether they're heels or faces, it really does kill the the flow. Um, this match could have been a lot better. Um, and as and as Chad said, the the ending was very clumsy. Um, it wasn't really a cheap finish. It just was really sloppy. Like nobody knew what was going on. Um, and obviously, things were in tow for the for the varsity club. As time progressed, so this was a big win for them, but a match that, that definitely could have been a lot better, um, but just was not executed cleanly. Justin, yeah, I, I liked that. I thought it was a fine opener. Um, <clears throat> the spot of the match for me was when Rogers ate Sullivan's knees on that dive off the top. I thought he took those things flush. That always annoyed me a little bit to see the crowd turn on the Fantastics. I thought they had a very good year in '88. I thought they worked well in the ring. I thought they had good charisma. Um, yeah, Krauses didn't like him, but maybe they could have had a heel run. I'm not sure. I thought turning turning Steve Williams heel was a good move um, as well. I wanted to comment quickly. Scott mentioned the finish, and I sort of chat how it's kind of out of place. Do you guys notice watching these? Um, it may assist the, the old school Dodef Mark and me. The finishes at NWA were never as good as they seemed like they should be. It seemed like they'd have these great matches, and then the last like 30 seconds would always be some kind of weird, convoluted clusterfuck. Whereas the WF, and I know Pat Patterson gets a lot of credit, always seemed to have made the matches weren't as great during this time, but the finishes were always uh, very well done. Have you guys noticed that uh, watching these shows? I'll let you answer that, Chad. Uh, I mean, yeah, I think one thing, um, and I think we may have touched on this on a previous show, but one thing that I think is really uh, important and true in the WWF is finishers were really over and important. Uh, so, and in, in beyond the finisher, each person had kind of a couple of setup moves, it seems like. Whereas in the NWA WCW, when we do see a clean finish, which is usually a rare occurrence, 
it's it's kind of a lot of roll ups or kind of stuff like that. Um, so it does seem like the finishes were a lot better put together uh, because I mean when we do see a good finish in the NWA like the at Clash of the Champions one when uh, Luger and Wyndham win the titles uh, that was a real good finish and that really kind of sticks out in your mind because of how rare it was to get that good of a finish and, in and, WCW, NWA. And I think I said on that Clash 1 show, as that match was finishing, I was waiting for a ref to come out, for some bullshit to happen, for some, you know, I couldn't believe that we actually saw uh, a fin- you know, clean finish and the faces went over, uh, because it just doesn't happen. But we have had, uh, really, five years of pure dusty booking. Um... And you know, uh, probably Dusty, if Pat Patterson is one of the greatest Finnish guys, I think Dusty is one of the, uh, it's not his strong point as a booker, I don't think. Um, you know, he's got a couple of interesting ideas, but he goes to them far too often. Uh, you know, and when you've, when you've seen them 12 times, um, you know, I'm not surprised that there were fans who were switching off, because they'd seen enough of it. I think the worst example is the um, is that Road Warriors match in Chicago, where they... Uh, where they were screwed out of the world titles. Um, that's one of the most gratuitous examples that I can think of. Um, so, yeah, I mean, my thoughts on this match, uh, I will say that Steve Williams, who I've given a lot of grief uh, on the past few shows, was a lot better in this match than he has been um, in the past couple of uh, shows that we've seen. I thought Kevin Sullivan was pretty sloppy in this match, um, and he seemed to drag things down whenever he was in the ring. And I'll agree uh, with you, Chad, that Bobby uh, Fulton uh, didn't have one of his better nights. Um, yeah. And I, d- I don't like Tommy Rogers with longer hair. Uh, I prefer him with shorter hair, as I mentioned before. Um, so coming out of this, we have uh, Tony Schiavone, who's with Magnum TA. Um, and they talk about the upcoming uh, Midnight Express versus Midnight Express match. Um that's the original Midnight Express versus uh, Stan Lane and um, Bob Eaton. We have Ivan Koloff and uh, JYD versus the Russian Assassins. Um, they say that JYD might just be the man to put uh, Paul Jones out of wrestling. Um, and I couldn't believe this. I was like, isn't this Ivan Koloff's story? I want Ivan to be the man, uh, you know, to do the deed. But um, apparently they're going to give JYD the credit. Um, Tony says that no one can beat uh, Mike, Mike Rotunda in 20 minutes, um, and Magnum TA disagrees. Um, Bob Coddle uh, is tipping the original Midnight Express uh, to win uh, in the next match, and that's one of a few um, totally um, unwarranted predictions he makes uh, as the night progresses. So the next match, the Midnight Express uh, with Jim Cornette versus the original Midnight Express, which is uh, Dennis Condry and Randy Rose um, with Paulie Dangerously. Now, Randy Rose, uh, I haven't seen this guy before. Has anybody got much experience of watching Randy Rose outside of this particular run? Uh, I've seen him a little bit in Memphis, uh, but not a ton. He's got that kind of like, I I mean, he's got an awful mullet. (laughs) <laughs> he's got like terrible hair, um, and I don't know. He just looked like uh, kind of a throwback wrestler to me. Didn't look like a guy who belonged on this card. Uh, but um, maybe we can talk more about Randy Rose as we get into as we get into this match. Um, 
Bob Eaton and Stan Lane clean house uh, to start. Uh, Cornette takes his jacket off and he wants a piece of Paulie Dangerously. He says he wants to give uh, a Christmas gift to America and um, kick that little punk's butt, he says. And Cornette's really getting fired up here. Dangerously wants none of it and basically kind of slinks off and uh, d doesn't get involved in the fight. Um, we get a double suplex on Condry to start. The Midnights, I notice, are really over his faces. Uh, Cornette calls uh, Dangerously a chicken uh, up on the apron. We get Condry versus Lane now. Condry takes a tumble to the outside um, and then he takes a tennis racket from Cornette. Uh, poorly Dangerously rings the bell uh, for a DQ, uh, which is unofficial. Um, then we get... Uh, um, what, what happens here? Uh, Oh yeah, we get Bill Apgra kind of creeping around the ring uh, with his massive camera. We get an inverted atomic drop from, uh, from Stan Lane. Randy Rose comes in uh, and he has a terrible uh, mullet I've, I've noticed again. Um, and a kind of moustache. He, he just looks like, I don't know, uh, he looks like a guy that um, should be like working in a Walmart or something. I don't know. Um, he goes outside now and uh, he gets a racket too. Uh, Paulie dangerously rings the bell again um, for a DQ, which I thought was quite funny that they went to it twice. Um, Rose begs off. Uh, Ross um, says he um, first saw Condry and Eaton um, in 1983, but he thinks that Eaton and Lane are a better team. Uh, and I'll just ask, who do you think? Uh, who would you pick uh, out of Eaton and Condry and Eaton and Lane? Scott and Justin? I, I actually, believe it or not, I was actually always uh, more favorable to Condry and, and Eaton. I don't know why. Maybe because Condry was never a very good-looking guy, but always pretended he was. So I think it added to the whole gimmick of them as a heel team. Like, he used to strut to the ring with the, with the bandana around his neck, and he really was not a very good-looking man. So I think, I think that whole gimmick kind of added to make it funny. Whereas Stan Lane was a, you know, I'm comfortable in saying it, a pretty good-looking guy and a good wrestler. So the gimmick, that gimmick kind of faded. I liked it better when you had three ugly guys, <laughs> which Condry, Eaton, and Cornette were, as compared to two ugly guys, and eh, Stan Lane was actually supposed to be like the pretty boy of the group. So I would definitely say that I always, for, for heel purposes, I always had a, a affinity for Condry in the, uh, uh, in the Midnight Express. Scott? Like, and that's more just due to exposure. I've seen more of their work. And I always like Stan Lane anyway. I like his... Um, I don't know, I just like this delivery and the whole... It reminded me a lot of, like, the Rougeos. <laughs> this is version, uh, maybe not completely, but some of the antics they do with the uh, the Savak kicks and the, the pimping and preening. And I was always a big Rougeau fan in Dota F, so I, I liked Lane. Um, I just I haven't seen much of the Conjury version, I'll be honest. But, um, yeah, I prefer the, the new Midnight Express. Chad? Um, I probably will go with the Lane... Uh, Eaton version as well. A lot of that has to do with the 1990 stuff I'm watching currently. Uh, I think they're fabulous in that year. So I, I do like Wayne kind of adding a kind of different flavor to the matches. So, so uh, Condra and Eaton are slugging it out now. Um, and Coddle says it must have been a bitter divorce. We get a big elbow from the top. Uh, Lane comes in uh, with a karate kick. Eaton with some rights uh, and a bulldog. Lane with an elbow. Rose is in now, but Eaton and Lane stay on top. Uh, Eaton misses a spot uh, in the corner. 
and the heels take advantage. We go outside where Eaton takes uh, an atomic drop. We get an elbow from Rose, then one from Condry. Rose hits a fist from the top to the outside. Uh, a short clothesline, uh, which is a move I don't see very often. I know Jake Roberts does it. Um, we get a neck breaker from uh, Eaton. Rose comes in. Uh, the heels stay um, generally on top for the next few minutes. Uh, they've cut this ring off now. Uh, we get a slam by Condry, followed by a rocket launcher from Rose, which misses. Uh, we get five um, five minutes remain. Hot tag to Lane. Karate kick. Double noggin knocker. Drop kick. Uh, Teddy Long uh, gets tied up uh, with uh, Paulie. Um, uh, no, sorry, he gets tied up somehow, and then Paulie dangerously hits the ring to interfere. Um, he uh, he manages to hit Lane, I think. Um, Cornette comes in. He nails Paulie himself. Um, Rose uh, covers Lane. Uh, Long um, goes to uh, count it, but then he spots the phone and stops. Eaton comes in and nails Rose. Um, Lane covers for the three. Uh, Condry has the racket and cleans house. He uh, there's a big heel beat down with the racket and the telephone on Cornette now. Eaton gets the racket to beat them off. Now, I thought this was good, but not great. Uh, but what did you think? I'll, I'll go to Justin first. Uh, yeah, it was all right. It seemed like they were really trying to work the the gimmick and the story more than actually put on uh, you know, a top-flight match in its own right. Um, I thought the end was pretty hot when Cornette finally got to hit Paul. I thought that was good. Um, and I thought this was going to be it. I figured it was one and done and the feud would be over. But when the original Midnight Express do that big brawl at the end and, and beat down uh, Cornette and, and Lane and Eaton, uh, I realized things are going to uh, continue into 89. So a fun match with a fun gimmick. I liked the idea. I thought uh, Dangerously was a good fit for this. Uh, just a little Weasley antagonist. So, um, yeah, I, I thought it was a good storyline. The match maybe could have been a little bit better. But I understand what they're trying to do. They're trying to basically play off the original Midnight Express and Dangerously as dickheads. And they had a, you know, mess around with the the new Midnights, so. Scott? Obviously, uh, this feud focused more on the two managers than the four wrestlers. I was, again, we talked about uh, Dennis Condry. Obviously, clearly the work rate got better when Stan Lane joined them. Um, it was kind of shocking to see Cornette get this much babyface reaction, because he usually doesn't. And it was quite refreshing, in my opinion, to see Eaton and Lane get a lot of respect from the fans, because they usually don't. Um, and I always like their tights, those really bad uh, skate <laughs> wall uh, tights. <laughs> you know, the weird colors. Uh, Paulie's outfit looks like he's manages like an ice cream parlor, but that's usually <laughs> the way he dressed from that stretch. Uh, the action was pretty standard, uh, slightly better than what we watched uh, in the opener. Uh, obviously, um, NWA slash WCW at the time went with quality over quantity. Uh, you know, we would have two very long tag matches to start. Uh, you know, the first one was almost 16 minutes. This one hits almost 18 minutes. Considering earlier in the year, WrestleMania 4, at this point, you already had like seven matches. So it's, it was very different to see the different way that, uh, that the shows were formatted. Um, but uh, I enjoyed the uh, the beatdown at the end. I thought this feud definitely could have had more legs, so I'm glad that they continued it. But uh, it was it was a good match, slightly better than the opener, probably because maybe the workers overall were a little better. But uh, I, I was glad the feud was continuing. Chad, any thoughts? Yeah, I think this is a good bit. Uh, it was certainly a lot of shtick, uh, but I thought it was, you know, good. And I always still find it really interesting to see kind of fired up babyface Cornette uh, kind of chasing 
Paul E. around and their interaction. So I thought, like, as far as a storyline match that advanced this storyline, I thought it was pretty good. And the actual action when they did start to wrestle each other was good as well. Yeah, I didn't think much of Randy Rose. Uh, what did you guys think of him? Uh, all right. I mean, he was serviceable, but I think that made the, the I think that made the feud even better, knowing that he actually uh, actually Cornette's Express was better, and I think that's what everybody was trying to to. I think that's what the feud was showing. So, um, I mean, he didn't. You know, he was he was pretty standard, but he was kind of like Buddy Rose. You know, he just kind of was there. But uh, you know, for the sake of the feud, I thought he I thought he was he was okay. No, I, I just thought that the match was a lot better when Condry and Eaton were in the ring together. And it kind of lost something when uh, when Rose was involved. Um, okay, uh, d- 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 any initial thoughts on uh, Randy Rose? This is the first time we've seen him, Chad. Um, I, I agree with what Scott said. I mean, to me, serviceable is about the best word for him. <laughs> okay. Um, so Coddle predicts that the Russians are going to beat Ivan and JYD. Uh, I've noticed that Coddle's going with all the heels tonight. Uh, we get a promo with the Varsity Club um, and... Um, they are pretty happy with winning the U.S. titles. They call Rick Steiner a moron a lot, um, and um, uh, I, again, I thought that Steve Williams was better in this segment than uh, previous promos that we've seen him. Um, Varsity Club getting quite a lot of uh, FaceTime tonight. I noticed they're pushing them pretty hard. Um, so our third match, and uh, this is three tag matches in a row, uh, which is an unusual. For a show to start off with three tag matches, um, and it's Ivan Koloff and JYD versus the Russian Assassins. And uh, I have to say, going into this, I am really pumped because I really, 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 really want Paul Jones to retire. Um, and uh, so I'm really rooting for Ivan and JYD going into this. Um, <laughs> we get. Uh, Doggy style headbutts from uh, JYD on Assassin 1 to start. Assassin 2 comes in. Um, Jones uh, basically breaks two different pin attempts by putting a foot on a rope. Um, Ivan comes in and chokes the the Russian 2, who turns the tables with uh, an eye gouge. Ivan gets a sickle from the top rope. Um, The Assassin 1 comes in now. Ivan gets a sunset flip. hits his head uh, into JYD's head, which was quite a funny spot, so instead of ramming his head into the turnbuckle, he rammed it into JYD's head, um, because of course JYD has got, um, you know, a very hard head, which is an ongoing um, idea in the 80s that I, I was somewhat dubious about. Um, it seemed that a lot of our African-American competitors had uh, hard heads. Um, Jim Ross says that uh, JYD is a former offensive lineman of somewhere or other, and rattles off a list of accolades. Um, obviously, that was in the distant past because JYD is, uh, you know, has quite a full figure at this point. Um, heels can't um, get anything going really in this match. Uh, we get a big sickle from Ivan um, from a JYD atomic drop. The drones has slipped something to one of the assassins um, who nails Ivan with it, and I can't believe it. No, 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 no. Ivan gets pinned. Fuck this bullshit. Chad. Yeah, I thought this was a, a bad match, a bad finish. Uh, one thing that I kind of noticed when watching this, as we said last time, uh, Russia number two was Jack Victory. 
and JR in the middle of this match, he uh, emphasizes that Russian assassin number two would love to have a victory over JYD, and he really emphasizes <laughs> the victory, which I, I, I kind of hate uh, sometimes where wrestling, where it feels like they kind of winking at you. But but I did like this, because if you didn't know any better, you could kind of just you know go along with it, and if you did know who that was, it kind of gave you sort of a shout-out where you could have a little chuckle to yourself. But as far as the match, uh, there's also a lot of lame uh, Cold War puns by Ross. I thought he was kind of annoying in this match. And uh, the action wasn't very good at all. And we're still stuck with Paul Jones, which doesn't excite me either. Scott? Uh, you know, it's funny, as much as I'm a big mark for for old school managers. I, I, I liked Paul Jones. I never had a big problem with him, but maybe at this point, I think he was maybe starting to wear out his usefulness. Um, I, 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 uh, I liked seeing Ivan Koloff as a face. It was kind of strange. Um, that's one reason why I kind of have a soft spot for this show because there's a lot of this weird emotion going on in a lot of these matches. Um, but, uh, JYD is just, just, he's just sad to watch. It really is. He's just slow, plotting um he, he pretty much mailed it in he came but he came here for for the check is pretty much what he came here for and you could see it in this match so it, it is a little disappointing but uh and the match is just not is just not very good uh not saying this match is <clears throat> gonna level but i thought it was better than it had any right to be <laughs> considering who was in it and what the storyline was um i'm a big ivan koloff fan i'm always a big russian uh, haas fan those are some of my favorite guys and ivan you know, going through the year of 88 when Scott and I were doing these reviews, I really got into his whole stock. I just loved how crazy and old and, and vicious he was. He was like this old school uh, Russian dude that didn't care about the new style of wrestling, didn't care about any of these young guys. He was just out there blading and bleeding and beating the shit out of guys. And um, I thought the turn with Paul Jones was really well done. And I, I agree with you guys. I was disappointed. Uh, to me, that seemed like the natural finish here. And you have these two, the Russian assassins, just seemed like useless drones. Uh, go over, you know, a guy that had built up pretty good cred in Ivan, and, you know, I'm not a big JYD fan at all, but um, still, coming in hot and, and helping Ivan, you, you expect them to just go over quick here and end the uh, the run of Jones. So, disappointing there, but I enjoyed um, Ivan's portion of all this. And just a quick note on JR that Chad mentioned. You know, for as great as he would become, he could be really annoying, especially during this time, with a lot of the uh, cliched jokes and some of the wink-wink stuff and a lot of the... Uh, yeah, the references to the Cold War and all—it's like, all right, Jay, we get it. You know, they're Russian. We don't <laughs> we don't need to harp on their comparisons to Lenin and Stalin and everything else. So, uh, I think that's a part that always bugged me with Jr. in some of these early years of him in in WCW, and even when he first comes to WWF, was a lot of that kind of stuff. I'm. Yeah, um, I did think I did, This was the first match where I really thought that Ivan was starting to look old. Um, like I, I have mentioned his age on numerous occasions in the past, but this was the first time where he seemed to have missed a step. Like, he seems to have lost a step from uh, even, like, six months previous to this. I think age is really catching up with him now. Um, but I'm baffled by the booking here. Absolutely baffled by it. I mean, the Russian Assassins are not going to be a team who are going to be pushed in any way. Um, right. they, built, they, they built Ivan up. Uh, this was his feud. Um, they brought JYD in, uh, and it seems bizarre. Why would you spend the money on bringing him in if he's just going to lose in his first match? Um, buries Ivan's face run, keeps a useless manager on the roster. Uh, I can't understand it at all. 
So I, I didn't like this from a booking perspective, and uh, I mean the matter is just there, really. Um, you know, it, it should have been a three-minute squash uh, with the faces going over, and that's what it would have been if uh, they'd been really thinking about how they were going to book this. I, I guess uh, the other point of view is uh, that you know JYD and Ivan Koloff are both old, so they're not really going to do much in 1989. But um, you know, why make the food in the first place? I guess. Um, I, I get the impression that maybe if uh, Nikita Koloff has still been around, that maybe they would have got a win here. Um, but uh, it seems strange to bring in JYD just to have him uh, lose. Anyway, uh, the next match is for the TV title. It's Mike Rotunda versus Rick Steiner. Um, Sullivan is, is going uh, in the cage above the ring for this one. And he seems to spend quite a lot of 1988 uh, in a cage. Um, so this is about at least the second or third time that he's uh, d done this gimmick. Um, there's a shrubbing match to start, um, and uh, Steiner gets the better of it. Um, we get uh, a wrist lock by Rotunda, Fireman's Carry takeover by Steiner. Jason Hervey is absolutely loving this match. Um, we get a headlock by uh, Steiner, big clothesline. Rotunda bails. Uh, Steiner talks to Alex. We get a hammerlock by Steiner now. Uh, who bites uh, Rotunda on his ass? Uh, we get an arm drag, a side suplex from Rotunda, uh, headlock takeover by Rick, into a head scissors from Rotunda, crossbody by Steiner, uh, which gets a two count. The fans are chanting, um, but I can't really make out what they're chanting here. Um, Rotunda uh, complains um, that the fans are distracting him and bails. Then he gets back in, and we get a big uh, SU chant. Uh, SU sucks chant, which I guess is Syracuse University sucks. Um, Steiner takes uh, a big uh, tumble to the outside now, and I, I wonder if the uh, kind of administration of Syracuse University, you know, they wouldn't have been very happy that a generation of wrestling fans that were down in the university because of Mike Rotunda. Um, we get a slam out on the concrete now, a uh, baseball slide from Rotunda. Elbow to the back of the head, back body drop, some kicks to the head. Then we get a reverse chin lock for quite a while. Um, it feels like time wasting. And uh, more on Rotunda's uh, reverse chin locks in a, in a moment. I think they're really boring. Uh, we get a clothesline from Steiner. Uh, Rotunda wants a timeout. Um, Steve Williams comes out. Um, we get a back drop, a power slam, a belly to belly from uh, Steiner. Uh, the bell rings. Steiner thinks he's... Uh, won the title um, and the start and uh, starts uh, basically cheering. Um, Tommy Young is here. Uh, what's going on? Rotunda charges uh, Steiner, uh, who comes back, covers uh, both refs. That's both uh, Tommy Young and Teddy Long count one, two, three. Steiner goes nuts. The crowd is wild, and we have a new TV champ. And uh, Magnum TA says that's what Starcade's all about. So what do we make of this one? Justin, I'll go to you first this time. I really like this match. I've enjoyed the feud and the build throughout 88. I thought Steiner was perfect in this role. He played the, the imbecile well. Uh, and in the ring, though, he was fantastic. He was in, he was ripped. He was in great shape. And he was kind of a, almost a complete package at this point in the ring. Um, you know, I thought the finish was good. I, I liked that they kind of teased us with the dusty finish. I, I think everyone assumed maybe that Rotunda would steal a win after that, and then to have Steiner's pin him clean shortly after was really good. Um, and and the, the pop was great, like you said. And I, I thought Steiner, to me, this is what we should have gotten in the Koloff match. This has been a, a long feud, a, a guy who was abused, 
he turns and, and wins the match. And like Magnum said, this is supposed to be what Starcade's all about. Um, you know, the face wins, the ends the big feud, and, and everyone goes home happy. So I, I thought this was really well done. And Steiner and Rotundo are both good in the ring. And I know what you're saying Rotundo definitely can be bland. Um, but he's a pro. And I, I thought the match was, for the most part, the 18 minutes was, was solid. I, I enjoyed it. Scott? There's a lot of aspects of this match that I really like. Um, uh, first off, the build was amazing. Uh, the fact that Steiner was in this crew for a long time, and then they just kicked him out because he was you know, the dullest tool in the varsity club shed. Uh, number two, have to be impressed with the way that they booked this great uh, run for Mike Rotunda. I mean, he was on every, almost every clash, if I remember correctly. Uh, and uh, he's just, he's really, they've really put his reign over as really big. Um, obviously the TV title is one of the more prized championships down in South. Uh, you know, uh, Arn Anderson had great runs with it. Dusty had good runs with it. So it's one of the more treasured titles down there. And I think they, that Mike Rotundo really put it over as an important belt and they did it on TV and he had a lot of title defenses. So every aspect of this match was good going in. The match itself is, is, is good. It's something earth shattering. Uh, I remember one point in the middle. Uh, I don't know if, if Ross's and Caudle's mics were cut or there was some, you know, somebody kicked a plug, but if I remember correctly, there was like three or three and a half minutes in the middle where there was no announcers. I thought that was kind of weird. I don't know what the deal was with that. Maybe, I don't know if it was uh, JR's and my uh, WWE Classics On Demand version. Maybe there was something that they didn't want said or, but I remember there was one point in the middle of the match, like three minutes, there was no announcing. Yeah, uh, yeah the silence too. Oh, okay. So maybe there was some type of audio problem. Uh, the end of the match is a lot of fun, and, I mean, you know, Mike Rotunda had the belt for almost a year, uh, and, you know, Rick Steiner gets the big win, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a good match, it's nothing crazy, uh, I know JR rakes a little higher than I do, but I, I still liked it, and I just, I think all the pieces were good, the match itself was not as good as the pieces going in was, but, uh, this was a big win for Steiner, one of the statement matches of this show, if you look back, and, uh. And the last thing is, I think I'm a, it's a little upsetting that Rick Steiner really did have a lot of good ability, but the problem was, once he became a tag team, it got lost in the shuffle. So, if you're a Rick Steiner fan, enjoy this run now because you really get to he really gets to step up as an announce as a an announcer steps up as a wrestler, and then once he becomes a tag team, it kind of it kind of fades. Well, Chad, you're someone who said that you're not particularly a big Rick Steiner fan. What did you make of this one? Yeah, and. Uh... And we got a couple of instances of that. There's one sequence in this match where he bites uh, Rotunda's ass uh, for about <laughs> 30 seconds, which kind of drove me nuts. Uh, but I think I think Scott described this match uh, well as far as my opinion of it, where I really like the pieces around it, the storyline going in, and the, the finish obviously is a great moment. Uh, but I, I didn't really like the match, the actual match that much. Thought it drug a good bit. And I uh, still don't, I mean, they really did give Rotunda almost a year long reign. And I just don't think in a lot of ways he sort of rose to the occasion and kind of broke through uh, to that next level with his television championship title reign. No, and I'm, I have a real big problem with his chin lock. Um it's I and I think that coincided with the with the moment that the commentators uh, mics cut out or whatever they just went quiet. So it, I was just sitting there watching Mike Rotunda sit in a chin lock for four minutes, um, and that that was probably the most boring part of this entire card. Uh, watching that, he really makes a rest hold seem like a rest hold, um, which is 
probably the worst thing you can do. You have to like, you know, crank on the neck or something or make it look like you're trying to hurt the guy. Um, so yeah, I thought this was decent but not not brilliant. I did think though that uh, Rick Steiner winning the TV title was a nice feel-good moment. Um, which you know we we've talked on this uh, show before, Chad, about how few kind of times they send the baby faces over clean. But this was one of the times where they did do it, and uh, I thought his celebration, running around the ring in excitement, was uh, was quite good. It was quite you know, um, it was something to be happy about if you were a fan at that point. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's certainly his celebration, like I like that part of his character, I thought was perfect. Uh, just the sheer, uh, the sheer like adulation and how excited he was, I thought was very contagious and made you happy watching at home. Uh, so that was very good. So we get some uh, terrible music that hits uh, the arena now uh, for Bam Bam Bigelow, um, who's with Oliver Humperdinck, who is a guy that I absolutely hate. Now before I get on to this match, um, I noticed, uh, Justin, that you're always called Bigelow34 on various different message boards. Is that something to do with Bam Bam? Yeah, he was always one of my favorites growing up in the early 90s, and, um, you know, sometimes we do, uh, you know, at home, we had that, as many of our PTB Nation listeners know now, we had our Backyard Wrestling Federation, the WCF. We'd also always play around, we'd record random, you know, matches, and I, I always portrayed Bigelow, he's just one of my favorites, so... When it came time to creating uh, screen names, when those were the, all the rage back in the early 2000s, that were all stuck now. Um, <laughs> that, that was that was the one I went with. So, right. So no, no, I was just I always wondered why uh, why you were called Bigelow 34. Um, it's kind of funny now how we're how we're all stuck with these names. I think we all hooked up with these message boards in the late 90s and early 2000s, and now it's like this is what we're all known by, so we have to stick with them. This is pretty funny. Chad, what's the story with Soup 23? Um. Well, my last name's. Campbell. Uh, so <laughs> most of my friends, uh, a lot of my friends call me Soup as a nickname. Uh, it's just something I've stuck with all through school. And uh, and then 23, it's kind of funny that Justin mentioned that because, yeah, I mean, Soup 23 was like probably my first uh, AOL instant messenger name in like 1998. So <laughs> I just sort of stuck with it. I was a big Michael Jordan fan. So that's where the 23 comes from. Here's my, my first AOL name and email back in the mid-90s was HRace34. Obviously, you'd assume because I was a Harley Race fan, but it was actually because my friend Rich, who was like kind of a um, in and out of being a wrestling fan, kind of only watched when he was with me, he confused Bob Holly with Harley Race because he was a race car driver. And it was a <laughs> joke for, like, for years, so that was my first AOL screen name, was HRace. Oh, it's funny. AOL, eh? Uh, did you remember those uh, instant... Uh instant chat boards they had. I wonder what ever happened to those things. Are they still going? Are there still like some AOL hardcores who still frequent those instant chat room things? Do you guys ever go on those? <laughs> my my in-laws unfortunately still have uh, AOL. I had to set up their router, their new wireless router over the holidays and uh, I was shocked to find that they still had the uh, AOL as their internet browser. Yeah, if you ever want to uh, look at a company that really uh, dropped the ball, uh, have a look at the uh, fortunes of AOL. Um, and of course, they will. We will mention them again further on down the line as they uh, become more of a part of WCW. 
This is the end of part one, but before we go, a word from Justin. First, get a couple plugs in here. Check out our 2012 year in review. We had Graham Cawthon on. Uh, It was great. Went through all the different promotions, all the different awards here in North America. Uh, You guys can uh, ring in with your your own votes personally. Listen in, see if they uh, how they matched up. Also, our biggest interview to date, possibly uh, this week, we're recording with JJ Dillon. That'll be posted on Friday, uh, the 11th. We're really looking forward to talking to JJ. We've had some good interviews in the past, but this is one where uh, he really stretched across a lot of promotions in a long time frame. So if you haven't checked out our past interviews, we've talked to Eddie Edwards, Stevie Richards, uh, Downtown Bruno, also known as, of course, Harvey Whippleman. We talked to Gary Michael Capetta and uh, Kevin Kelly, also a regular on our show. So check out that past catalog of interviews and uh, really looking forward to JJ. So check that out as well. Fans, for all of us here at WCW Center Stage, for Cowboy Bill Watts and the American Dream Dusty Rhodes, I'm Jim Ross saying good night, everybody.